4: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 26th of January and this is our Invasion Day broadcast. Today on the show we're going to bring you discussions from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service Invasion Day webinar. That happened last week. Specifically, we're going to bring you some discussions about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice issues, including self-determination, ending systemic racism, and deaths in custody. After that, Ella will be bringing us some historical audio from Bruce McGuinness. And at the end of the show, I'll be speaking with Professor Jacqueline Troy about uncovering Aboriginal languages. But... It doesn't stop with Wednesday Breakfast. 3CR's Invasion Day broadcast starts from 9am until 4pm. So do hang around after the show to listen to the full day of content from our incredible First Nation broadcasters. For now, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. And Claudia,
2: take it away. Good morning, 3CR Breakfast listeners. This is Claudia back again. I think this might be the first time I've joined you in 2022. So before we start, this is our Invasion Day coverage today as uh, you'll be aware. So I wanted to just let listeners know that the content following does centre on some difficult subjects and maybe triggering for some listeners. For any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in, please note there is going to be discussion of loss of life through suicide, deaths in custody and the ongoing traumas caused by the impacts of colonisation. If you feel these subjects may affect you or trigger unhelpful emotional responses, you may wish to tune out for the next segment. But if you are staying with me, and I do hope you will. I do hope you find the discussion illuminating. Uh, We've got some great speakers to share. If it does raise any issues or concerns during the broadcast or afterwards, uh, we would encourage you to get in touch with Lifeline 13 1114. Or if you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, you can call Yarning Safe and Strong. That's a helpline run by the Victorian Health Service and the number there is one 1-800-959-563. 1-800-959-563. So in my segment this morning, we're going to be having a listen to some intelligent, experienced speakers who got together last Friday at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services Annual Invasion Day webinar. And they uh, had a chat about some of the really big issues facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, self-determination, systemic racism, ending Aboriginal deaths in custody and protest rights. So lots of justice issues. And they highlighted the fact that last year 2021 was the landmark year for deaths in custody. As we know, it was the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission, which had taken place back in 1991. It's a bit sad, uh, but I can actually remember that. I was in my last year of law school in Western Australia, and I actually did an assignment uh, on the report. uh, So I remember it well and the finding that the large numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who were dying in custody was a res- direct uh, result of the overrepresentation of them in uh, prisons. So clearly highlighting that there needed to be things addressed on both sides, what was happening inside and in terms of police uh, behaviours and health and attention and environmental changes, but also really highlighted to me that if you weren't in there to start with, then you wouldn't be subjected to those factors. Um, So making changes that helped people stay in their communities and stay safe outside the system was really important. And I think that's why last year was really difficult to reflect on that 30 years had passed and while a number of reforms that were recommended had taken place, the number of lives lost continues to rise and since 1991, when the report was handed down, uh, there's now been more than 500 precious lives lost and, yeah, that was, a, you know, a really horrible milestone. We're going to hear a bit from Narita Waite. She's the CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS as it's called for short, and she's going to be hosting the discussion that we'll be listening to this morning. Um, I'm Narita Waite. Um, I'm the
5: CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, I've been lucky enough to work across many areas of the law for VALS, which has given me a front row seat to the disastrous and horrific effects our community suffered due to invasion and colonisation to this day. These impacts and experiences and voices of our clients and communities have informed much of our strategic work over the last 12 months, which has seen us contribute to legal and policy discussions on disability, mental health, systemic racism, sentencing, strip searching, drug offending and many others. Last year sadly marked the 30th anniversary of Rickard and rather than seeing vast improvements in justice and corrections, we surpassed 500 deaths. VALS represents the families of many Aboriginal people who died in custody. Many of these factors are repeated over and over again. Things such as lack of equivalent healthcare services, harsh bail and parole systems, over-policing of Aboriginal people, and poor oversight and accountability mechanisms and justice system are common features when an Aboriginal person dies in custody.
2: And that was Narita Waite from VALS. She's joined by the co-founder of Warriors for Aboriginal Resistance, Marie Kionis activist, writer and community organiser for Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, Taneen Onus Williams, and Marcus Stewart, who's the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. And what I liked about this discussion is that we we hear four voices, four informed opinions on these important subjects. And the very first question that's put to the panel, um, we're going to take a listen to now, and that is, what is self-determination? What's really happening when it, we talk about self-determination?
5: First question um, for you all to start us off is: governments and institutions often say they support self-determination for Aboriginal Islander people, but there are very few examples of where it has been done well. What does effective Aboriginal self-determination look like, and how do we make it a reality?
3: Uh, well, firstly. Um... Narita, I just want to extend my acknowledgement of country too and acknowledge the Wurundjeri or Wurundjeri country where I am today and acknowledge their elders past and present, but also acknowledge the work Val's historically has done and, and currently does uh supporting our mob. I think um I think there's one fundamental issue when we think about this notion of government and self-determination. You know, if we're talking about self-determination in the context of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, Article 3, our right to representation to make decisions that impact our lives, that's not a government function. Government can't impose their interpretation to what they see fit to be self-determination. And quite frankly, I find it offensive that they continually use that term imposed on whatever initiative they do. I think if we're talking self-determination, that is Aboriginal people making decisions on the, the issues, policy, legislation that impacts their lives. Um, that's why we've seen a lack of what they'd consider self-determination initiatives across the board, because they misrepresent what self-determination is. It's not um, non-Indigenous lawmakers sitting in a parliament making legislative decisions on issues that impact our lives. It's it's us doing it even in a policy context from a you know a departmental point of view um, i think there's i think there's a fundamental issue of how government perceive and try to utilize this notion of self-determination and self-determination should be aboriginal control over aboriginal issues that'd be my my take on it
5: thank you marcus maruki or tanning do you have anything to add um <clears throat>
6: I think self-determination is, you know, one of those political words that can just turn into a buzzword that can be stretched and used for the whoever's agenda of the day um, is tabled. But for me, it's about sovereignty and it's about land back. And, um, you know, and I don't want to see, you know, the works of, you know, Kevin Gilbert and um, Malcolm X talks about self-determination. It can't simply be watered down to our welfare needs. It's about our right to determine what happens over our lives and our country ultimately and you know i think in my own personal opinion what really true self-determination could be and, and might be is that that we treaty as sovereigns in this country um and that you know we have the treaty partner but we are the the primary um partner in the treaty making and that the settler state um, has to partner with us under our conditions, so that for me is true self determination. I think, but it can be stretched to whatever you know. If you asked um, John Smith or whoever in government uh, what self determination means, they'll talk to you about the policies that they're delivering and and the and the welfare approach. Um, um, which you know, I mean, I'm not in critical of. I'm just I'm just um, pointing to how the word can be stretched to different meanings, and I think that the importance is to keep the the focus on. The struggle for sovereignty and, the, and, it, and it's kind of a verb it's not really um, a destination um, because can't really tangibly think about what it looks like but you know what does it feel like and anyway I could go on I think I've gone over time but that's no, not
5: you're fine Ricky but just um, your comments made me think that you know, if we look at self-determination, it can mean, like you said, it's different concepts for different people, but also the way it can be implemented is very different for people. Um, what does self-determination look for those who are incarcerated, for example, um, those who are poverty-stricken, um, struggling with substance and mental health? Um, does anybody have any thoughts about how we might tailor self-determination um, for those very vulnerable cohorts? Well, I want to
7: talk about two things. Um, so I'll touch on that in a second, Rita. But I did want to make a point that when I was on the Aboriginal Interim Treaty Working Group, sorry, it's a mouthful, um, I was very critical about them using the self-determination policy as well. I think that's something that lots of like the grassroots organisations and like grassroots activists have used. And I really do think it it was co-opted a bit from the government and using it in a way, like Murphy said, to do funding and like for welfare. So... I am very critical about the government's um, approach to using it. And I think that, in terms of like, for people who, are in, for people, self determination for people in our community, I know that like our organizations and the people in our community, we do a lot of that work already. We already look after each other. And I think that, you know, COVID has really like showed me a lot um, about how much community look after each other. I know that when we were even isolating for a week because my partner had had COVID, Um, we had community going out and getting us stuff and going grocery shopping or, like, bringing sweet treats, you know. Um, Ricky made us some cake. Like, it is just people, like, help each other out. We do do it. And I think that, like, black fellows are always doing the work and we need to, you know, I think we need to sometimes be easy on ourselves because we do go above and beyond and like more than so many other people and more than other communities that I know, like we do go hard. And I'm really proud of all of the work that we do for people who are vulnerable. And like, I know that when I was a little rat bag in my early, in my late teens being really critical of people that were vulnerable in our community and, my auntie sat down and she was just like, this is what we do for each other. This is what organisations were set up for. So don't be critical of people that are vulnerable. Like, those people are the reason why all the things that exist, for you know, organisations exist.
5: No, Good point, Taneen. Um, one of the questions that has come through is, um, in what ways my Aboriginal allies respectfully contribute, engage with or support the work towards self-determination? Particularly through effective advocacy and policy change and resource allocation. Um, Marcus, I'm thinking, given your work and your current role, that might be a perfect question for you. Uh,
3: thanks, Dorita. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. And if we go back to your earlier question as well as what does self-determination look like within a you know a correctional setting or something, it's and if we take a step back and think about a correctional setting where it's. You're told when you get fresh air, when you eat, when you see daylight. Like it's, it's a crazy environment, um, enforced by the state. And so, I think it fundamentally comes down to is we've had a civil service sector, our echo sector, that have driven you know change in Victoria for a long time. And if we think about you know what the work the assembly doing as far as treaty and our advocacy for truth. We've just been able to build on decades of advocacy and activists um, to, to to get it to where it is, and so we see um, we see allies playing a critical role in helping transform the systems. I think you know people often talk about the systems broken. Is it really, or is it working how it was built to work? Uh, I remember someone telling me once. Um, And I found I found the comment interesting and, you know, they're talking about the closing, closing the um, gap report that comes out every 12 months. And their interpretation was, and they were a data expert, uh, an Aboriginal data expert had said that, isn't this just a pulse check to make sure the colony is working as it was set up to work? And I think that's an insightful comment uh, when we think about systems and structures. And that's why we we built on those decades of, of activism for a truth-telling process. So we could fundamentally understand how these systems and structures disproportionately impact our people. I mean, we know, but our allies don't. And government are happy to nurture the status quo, keep things as they are, minimally invest in our services to pretend that they're doing it so they resolve a political issue, not a fundamental issue of, where we see growth in overrepresentation uh, in the criminal justice system or child protection, so our allies play a critical role in standing with us and walking with us on um, on these journeys. We see treaty as a as a long term reform piece that we can reimagine our systems and structures. But that doesn't resolve what happens today, and it doesn't resolve what will happen tomorrow when the statistics are dramatically growing for our mob out there.
6: Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's zero four three four one three six five zero one, Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
3: a message from Victoria's community sector.
8: I'm looking forward
5: to not worrying that my patients are gonna die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding
6: and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
9: I really want to see my mum.
6: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To
8: having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play.
10: I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again.
5: So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated.
9: Let's get back to the good
5: things.
8: I ask you to get vaccinated.
5: For all of us.
8: Please get vaccinated.
3: A message from Victoria's community sector.
2: A 3CR supporter. If you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to 3CL Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. And I'm your host for this segment, it's Claudia, and I welcome our listeners back this morning. It's the 26th of January 2022, Invasion Day. And we've been hearing from a panel of speakers from the 2022 Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services Invasion Day webinar, they've been discussing the meaning of self-determination. Among them uh, is Marcus Stewart. He's the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. and He posed a provocative question about Aboriginal justice. He asked, is the system broken or is it merely working the way it was designed? It's one to reflect on when we uh, look at colonial institutions and... Uh, how little uh, real change is occurring within the the, the fabric of those institutions. We're gonna take a break now for some music, but don't go away. We'll be hearing more from the VAL's Invasion Day panelists. And when we come back, uh, we'll be hearing their views on how to tackle systemic racism. But first here's a song, uh, Nathan May with Lost.
1: I go in this life? it looks so dark. And the people telling lies to one another, that can we trust? All the moments that I've had, been tearing me down. I'm afraid to look inside that mirror, reflections hurt. Lost on a train to somewhere And I'm lost Lost on a plane to somewhere To nowhere, oh I don't In my head will never change. These little voices inside my head are still the same. Telling me that I am lost, but I'm finally found. Well, that's the things that I have had for some years now. on a train to somewhere
2: And that was Nathan May with Lost, a track from the First Sounds album, Volume 1. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia, and this is our Invasion Day special program. And 3CR has a whole day of programming dedicated to First Nations survival. It's going on at 3CR today, live between 9am and 4pm. So please keep tuning in when... um, Our program's finished. There's lots more on the agenda. And uh, just a note for listeners that the content we're discussing this morning is serious and contains references to deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including suicide. If this could be triggering for you, you may wish to wait a while before tuning in. For those of you uh, staying with the conversation We've been listening to a discussion hosted by Narita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS. She's joined by Taneen Onus-Williams, Mariki Onus and Marcus Stewart, co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. And they've been discussing a variety of justice issues. They've just expressed their views on the question of what is self-determination And now we're going to hear them respond to another big question. How can we undo systemic racism in Australia? Narita foregrounds this question by highlighting the dreadful statistics from 2021, where, as I said uh, in my introduction, the number of deaths in custody, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody, since the Royal Commission handed down its report in 1991, surpassed 500 lives last year. It's incredibly uh, tragic and excruciating, given uh, 30 years has passed since that report recommended changes to prevent those deaths. And then another statistic which is equally chilling was that in Victoria last year, deaths by suicide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rose by 75%. It's a really, really devastating trend, upward trend. So we got to hear from Ariki Onis first, and then Taneen Onus williams um, from the panel. And they're going to talk about their views on what should change how can you actually dismantle systemic
5: racism in Australia that often works to perpetuate cycles of disadvantage and lead to poor outcomes like this? And in answering that question, are there any other examples that you think more people should know about?
6: I'm, I'm happy to speak to this. And I think there's no solid answer. And I really like, you know, when I'm reading about um, abolition and um, Angela Davis's work, it's that we haven't ever really ever seen freedom in a tangible sense is something that we have to reimagine and you know and I've been doing a little bit of reading on emergent strategy and I really like um you know some of the stuff that comes out of that it's like just to focus on what we want and build the future of what we want to look like instead of you know and a lot of abolitionists say that um, abolition doesn't start inside the prison walls it starts by building communities where people don't need prisons to exist um and I think that there is no, we haven't actually seen what liberation or freedom looks like for Aboriginal people in this country. And that's why I really praise the work of Black artists because they're the ones imagining and creating the visuals and singing the songs and singing the songs of freedom for us. And so um, I know it sounds a bit, it's not a tangible answer, but it does exist and I don't think, you can discount what, what freedom can look like if we keep dreaming and building um, in unity together um, outside of the systems of violence. And we have to accept, and I think that, you know, I would love to see institutions like uh, vows and other legal institutions to really accept and embrace what abolition looks like in, on a policy framework. And I think Sisters Inside do such a fabulous work, do amazing work in that space. Um, and I think that we need to abolish prisons and that needs to be an honest, fair um, policy platform that we that we look to. you know prisons do have a history of racism that they're racist institutions to the core um, and we've lent a lot of how we how, how australia um, how Australia runs prisons is very much of the American model which is a product of slavery. it's so, um, if you want to talk about a tangible way of reading racism in our societies, getting rid of prisons in our communities is a very good start and a tangible start, in my opinion. Absolutely.
7: And I think, you know, Angela, Doc, Dr. Angela Davis's work, she talks about,
6: you know, that prisons
7: were the reform before, like, and that was the reform to stop like executions and um, other forms of dealing with crime in the community. And so, You know, like, we really do need to look outside of prisons and we need to look at different ways of dealing with harm in our communities because, like, they are destroying our communities. And, you know, it also comes back to um, capitalism and cheap labour. You know, we think about Qantas, who we found out a couple of years ago that um, women at DPFC were packing headphones for Qantas. And so, and then we there was also um bunnings. Like I think there's one of the prisons here in Victoria that the prisoners make little screws. So, you know, like we have to look at why they exist and all the ways how they operate and all the companies that make money off them. And mm-hmm. you know, like we think about Telstra, we think about the food that goes into there, like what sort of clothes what companies like ASICs, for instance, they're the only shoes that you're allowed to wear inside some prisons in Victoria. So we have to look at all of, you know, the businesses that have buy-in from prisons to um, understand why it exists and um, who's making money off it and the all of the destruction that it does to our communities and our society because I was reading like a young woman's post um yesterday who's one of my one of my friends and family and she had been incarcerated last year and she said that she was only there for a month but it was and she said yeah it might not seem like a long time but it's just horrendous and she said nobody should be there and we need to remember that no matter doesn't matter how, how the amount of time doesn't meet doesn't matter if you're in remand or whatever like those these institutions are violent and they're not there to help our people. They're,
6: they're there to take us off our land
7: and to
6: harm us more. Also, can I just add to that? Um, yeah, I went, I did the Beyond the Bars NADOC program where we went in and took the radio programs into the prisons. And we did a, a prison show in Port Phillip Prison. And I don't, I mean, it's the first time I'd ever been in that place. And it still, it still stays with you. Just standing inside the walls of that place, it's an extremely violent place. And through that program, I went to see a few different prisons, but that one, that prison is a privately run prison, which um, is is an atrocity in itself. But they have to work uh, for eight dollars a day, um, or their living standards will drop. And you know they have to work for companies external to the prison, like washing um, linen for. Um, other companies. So the interlink of um, capitalism within the prison system today that creates cheap or close to free labor, you can't say that $8 a day is cheap labor. That's almost free, that's slavery in my opinion. Um, And so there is slavery in Victoria um, that that the prison systems rely on to create money for Victoria to to, to exist. So I think that we have to really, you know, it'd be really good to see vows or the treaty to do a body of work on this and who's who's making money off off, of black slavery in victoria it's it's, you know i think we start there if we want to destroy racism
3: um i maybe i maybe should have gone first because that's really hard to follow um i mean you think and i think about so as i said earlier treaty we see as a vehicle to reimagine what those systems and structures look like. And if I think about my time, um, well, I worked in corrections for a period of time when the bail reform was happening and you look at the impact that that's had and the attitude internally back then was tick and flick. We we go about our business tick and flick. That's just like, you know, we were just really token in there trying to create change and getting nowhere. Um, but it was really insightful working there as well because you see how much is invested in that tertiary end and that's why we're not seeing outcomes. The investment needs to be in keeping families together um, and supporting and strengthening families. I mean, that's a critical body of my work, you know, working as a therapist and and I think that's the failure of this status quo system that people and governments are proud to be tough on crime all they're saying is we're proud to tear Aboriginal families apart mm. um, on the basis of winning votes. That um, you know our lives aren't as important as holding power, maintaining power, and that's why truth telling was so critical because it has to pull apart how exactly these systems are disproportionately impacting us. We need our allies to understand what this does because it's horrific. Sorry, I- Ricky.
6: No, no, I mean, I think just to go on that, and one of the fears that I have with treaty um, is, and we've seen it in the US, examples of it in the US, where we just replicate the systems of harm but just get black hands to do it with less money. And I think I would love to see through the treaty uh, a transforming of the system that Aboriginal and all people can interact with. Because, you know, you see examples in Aotearoa where the Maldi system transformation is actually a better system for the settlers to experience as well. So I don't see it as just an Aboriginal solution or problem. This is the, these systems are harmful for everybody.
2: That was Narrator White, Mariki Onus, Tarnine Onus Williams, and Marcus Stewart speaking at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service Invasion Day Panel Discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of the discussion, you can find it on YouTube by simply typing in 2022 VALS, capital V, capital A, L, S, Invasion Day webinar. And you can have a listen to uh, the rest of their conversation. And I'll just make a mention that VALS also has published a a little visual guide. It's very uh, short and uh, accessible. It's called Know Your Protest Rights and although they're not having their live uh, in-person protest rally this year, it's going to be a virtual event, this is still a really um, good little guide to check in on and uh, tells you just the nuts and bolts of what you can and can't do so you can be confident um, when you are attending rallies that you're going to keep yourself safe and um, not attract uh, any attention that you uh, aren't wanting. So, uh, just to wrap up once again, if today's discussions have raised any issues or concerns for you, please get in touch with Lifeline 131114. The suicide callback service is available on 1300 659 467. And for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening, if you want to reach out, uh, Yarning Safe and Strong is a helpline run by the Victorian Health Service, and you can reach someone there on 1800 959563. That's 1800 959563. I'm Claudia, and that's all from me this morning, but stay tuned for more on 3CR. Victoria Legal Service has
6: launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. <whistles>
11: Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR.
1: It's like I'm walking through a maze Up my own Cause running from something Just to turn around and find You were running from yourself All the time
0: You're tuned in to 3CR, and we just heard Thelma Plum with Around Here. You're listening to the Wednesday Breakfast team's Invasion Day broadcast, and today marks 50 years since the Aboriginal Tent Embassy was set up on the lawns of Parliament House to protest the government's refusal to acknowledge Aboriginal land rights. Next up, we're going to take a listen to some speeches made later that year, on July 30th, by a number of activists. And a warning to listeners that the following content contains the name and voices of First Nations Australians who have died. In the weeks leading up to these speeches, there had been a number of clashes between the protesters and police, who forcibly, and often violently, removed the protesters from the lawn and tore down the tents. The tents were re-erected by protesters, who resumed the peaceful demonstration. We'll now hear from the following activists at the time. Bruce McGuinness, Bob Mazza, Jack Cummings, Ken Brindle, Roberta Sykes, and Michael Anderson. Five
11: years ago, Dennis Walker and myself met here in Canberra for the first time. At that particular meeting, we both sat down and, and went through the dialectics of what was going to actually occur in Aboriginal affairs in the following five years. We felt then that unless something was done, and unless something was done immediately, to form some form firm policy so that Aboriginal people could see that they were in actual fact going to get the power that they desired to justify Had to formulate their own policies on how they would want equality to work. We decided then, and we are sticking firm by that decision today, that the only way we're going to get what we want off Whitey is to stand up and take it. Nobody and no amount of people are going to give us four aborigines. It has to be done. My Aboriginal people, the right person crowd, to sit up and to support us. Today, I think we're going to see something worse.
10: To say. You've got a great deal to say about the violence that took
11: place last week. Mr. Jack Cummins. Listen, well, I didn't. I
10: was got trigger. It's not a gun, it's only a gun. <laughs> not a gun, the
11: gun will fight the battle. Well, comrades, like the previous speaker, Bob Mazda, I also welcome all you people along here today, particularly those people who have come a long way, some from Brisbane, some from Adelaide, I believe, and all parts of Australia to rally around the Aboriginal cause. It's it's very heartening indeed to see also what Bob Claimed, and I believe it to be correct that it has succeeded in uniting the Aboriginal people formerly our people were a little bit reluctant to uh, to face up to the establishment due to, due to the fact due to the fact that they've been sat on for some 200 years of police suppression and brutality has been the order of the day since the first settlement of the colonial mercenaries in this country. We have suffered perhaps more than any other race of people on the face of this earth. We have been discriminated against more than any other race on earth that I, like I know of, anyhow. Apart from legislations that have been specially brought down from, against Aboriginal people. There are special uh, forces in the acts, uh, in, in the legislation that are brought down to protect the white people, that are also there to discriminate against uh, the Aboriginal people. So today, it gives me great pleasure indeed to be here to see this embassy being erected. Although the Macquarie government, she does not see fit to uh, open up diplomatic relations with uh, the Aboriginal people, it has diplomatic relations with such scum as Worcester of South Africa and Smith of Rhodesia and that's... Other <laughs> scum like Salazar of Portugal and Franco of Spain and still it does not seem hasn't got around to having diplomatic relations with the, with, the, with the indigenous peoples of this country. I don't know what's going to happen when they dismantle this tent or if they do What do we do from there on? Do we seek political asylum in the the embassy, say, of the Indian embassy, of the Soviet Union, or what do we do? I don't know. We'll have to to play that by ear. I don't don't know whether we should be trying to establish diplomatic relations with them. I believe that they should be trying to establish diplomatic relations with us. But evidently, true to the fascist-like, uh attitude the racial racist attitude which has also got them in vietnam um uh, it, it's got them in vietnam it's all tied up with a one brush don't make no mistake about that their entire attitude towards the black man is just not a a, 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 a national issue it was an international issue and anyhow i'm rambling on here a bit comrades they caught me unawares when they bung me out of this but all I hope is that this is the beginning, and from now on that we retain these people, you get back to your jobs when you leave here, talk about it on the job, because in the very near future, perhaps due to part of the federal elections coming up, we must take the, the streets again, and politics does belong to the streets, it's not the part doesn't belong across here. It belongs to the people
10: in the street, irrespective of a Whitlam or McMahon says it. Yeah. Yeah. The next speaker, ladies and gentlemen, is Mr.
9: Ken Pringle. Well, I've been involved in Aboriginal affairs for the last 12 years. I've been down to 12. Uh, uh, federal council conferences here at Canberra and I've never felt the same way as I feel now. I was the New South Wales State Secretary of the Federal Council up till with that abortive uh, conference in, in Townsville and then I decided that the Federal Council was a little bit too tame and wasn't prepared to fight the way these people are fighting today for their rights so I resigned. I haven't been in, involved in any Aboriginal movement really other than the famous Red for all Blacks I had to get that in but uh, but I'm very, very happy to come down here. And one of the first things I'd like to say to the meeting and to anyone who could get the message across is, is it possible that some of the other black embassies in Australia will give a, an official reception to our embassy uh, staff and show that recognition? If they do that, it'll give us a bit of a go. The other thing is, uh, there are a lot of Aborigines uh, in the country towns. I was up in Kempsey, up on the far north coast, Uh, when I saw the uh, thing on television and there were about 15 or 16 young Kuris watching television with us and they were a bit shocked by what they saw but they were also elated and they were very, very proud that that Aborigines were proven to the world that uh, they were prepared to fight for what was theirs and they weren't prepared to just go and ask uh, their white mates to go and fight for them they're getting up and fighting themselves and this is what this is all about today now... We're not, we're not uh, doing this for the people of the world, although it'll go out, it'll be world news, but it's it's not so important for the people of other countries to see this as as it is for Aborigines that are living in huts and shacks and shanties in places like Wilmoringal, well, Menindi, Burke, Colawenderbry, Tumala, Gaduga. You could go on all day. And these places are right out of sight of the government. And I was talking to... Uh, WC went the big WC. Yeah, right.
11: yeah. uh,
9: well, when he was the Minister of Fabulous Affairs and I was then working for the university until I fell on a few corns. And, and we discussed uh, the position of Aborigines living on a six acre block up at Walmeringle. No work. Half of them, half of them didn't have, have the education uh, well enough to write. And we, I said, look, there's no work there, there's all these people living there, what can you do for them? And he said, well, uh, uh, what can we do for them? We can't move them, you know, and we can't build houses there for them because there's no work there for them. I said, then what can you do? And he said, well, you tell me. And I said, well, you can paid a bloody lot more money than I am to solve the problem. Anyway, that is the, the government's po- policy towards Aborigines, particularly in isolated places where they're living in poor conditions. And... This, this embassy doesn't only stand for Aboriginal land rights, it stands for Aboriginal equality. It stands for... It, it, it wants to push the point that Aborigines need. More than land rights, they need the opportunity to be given a decent education and to be able to stand up and take their uh, place alongside the white people in this modern-day society. I'd like to just... Uh, I'd like to just close by saying I, get, I got a terrific kick out of out of coming down and mar- I'll probably get a few more too, before today's out. But <laughs> well, I got a terrific kick out of coming down and marching with my own people and with all the support. And I say we're such a vast the Aboriginal people are such a vast minority in this country, are such a vast minority that you cannot succeed without the sympathetic support of the uh, uh, the Europeans, oh, let's call them Euro-Australians, because that's what they are, they're not Australians, they're Euro-Australians. Yeah, Brittany's are Australians.
10: The next speaker, ladies and gentlemen, is one that you all know well. <coughs> She's probably been one of the most uh, instrumental forces in, in uh, the mass today, Miss, Miss Bobby Sykes.
8: Thank you. For the benefit of the many who aren't aware that we have a
10: the first ambassador to the Aboriginal Embassy is a person that was here on the very first day after the the, uh, token handout which McMahon issued in terms of land rights Mr Michael Anderson
11: Thank you Well
12: I haven't got very much to say except that I'm very disappointed and today I'm very pleased standing again before me. Um, i just like to say that I have just come back from a three-month trip into the country onto all settlements in New South Wales, that is. I was informed by one particular doctor, Mr. Dr. Calakarinis, who is at the moment being threatened with deregistration by the Australian Medical Association because he has, he has condemned the Australian Medical Association for not recognising the diseases that are killing our Aboriginal babies and killing them at the rate of 10 to 1. Now, he has told me and informed me that there has just been a statistics taken by the government and the Medical Association in New South Wales. And now, I'd like to know why these here, why the statistics have not been released on the death rate in New South Wales. them, and I'm not going to give you the figures, but I am shocked, because our babies are dying worse than they are in the Northern Territory. Now, are we going to sit down and ask peacefully anymore, ask them to save our babies from dying, ask them to save our people from going blind? We're not going to do that. It's alright for white people and the Australian Government and the police force to say, do it through the proper channels. What are the proper bloody channels? As far as I am concerned, the United States has shown me the right channels, and as our famous Dr. Martin Luther King said, and this is what I am standing by today, if a man has not found something he would die for, then he is not fit to live.
0: Thank you, brother. You're listening to 3CR, and that was activist Michael Anderson speaking at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy on July 30th in 1972. Before that, we heard from Bruce McGuinness, Bob Mazza, Jack Cummings, Ken Brindle and Roberta Sykes. And today is, of course, Invasion Day, so stay tuned to join us for 3CR's annual Invasion Day broadcast from 9am to 4pm today. This year we'll be highlighting the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, one of the world's longest continuing protest sites, occupying the lands of what is now Old Parliament House since 1972, protesting the conditions relating to Aboriginal people across Australia, such as land rights, truth and repertory justice. Now, Lady Lash with Crest of Gold.
1: to go a place to breathe in. Six years I've been in desert.
6: Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria.
12: It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much brings us all together.
3: Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just
7: want to say to thank you laws. to all of you for What's giving the us the opportunity to speak the on air.
3: The, reason, the bigger the reason, the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And
6: you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars.
10: But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We
3: can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family.
6: If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah join me at every Friday Black
8: and Deadly Friday Robbie Fort Radio 3 CR Yeah join me at 11 every Friday for some Black and Deadly sound, please. Community Regal 855 on the AM Friday Robbie Fort Radio
4: Thank you so much, Professor Jacqueline Troy, um, for meeting with me today. And you are from the Snowy Mountains. You're a Nagaragu woman um, who is Director of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. And I believe you, your speciality is language and linguistics.
13: Yes, Alice, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, I am Ngurugu. And um, we are the only Alpine Aboriginal people in Australia. So we're the snow mob, as we say. And uh, my particular field of research is anthropological linguistics. And I um, am particularly interested in the languages of Australia and southeastern Australia. But I also do research elsewhere in the world now with mountain people in northwest Pakistan, so the Tawali community of Sawat, for example.
4: Mm. And what is it about mountain languages or the mountain people that has drawn you there?
13: Well, it's my country. And uh, there's something about country that we say as Aboriginal people is always part of you. It's in my, it's in my soul. It's in my body. It's in my heart. It sounds very corny, but we actually have this particular relationship with country that it is embodied in the people who are of that country. And, and the, the country has us embodied in it, if you like. So every part of it has significance to us and we have a responsibility to care for it, which is something that I, I hope the rest of the world will take on board as well. You can't just live on country. You have to be caring for it. And that's um, through to care for our country. It's I, I think and for me, knowing the language of country is what really matters. It's that sort of deep understanding through being able to speak to country and language that and to speak to other people in the language of that country about that country you know the all the things that are of a particular place like the snowy mountains for example our word for snow cool and we have this word for the top of the mountains uh, many people call that place Mount kozushko now but it's actually kunama namaji, which literally means the snowy mountains. Ku, snowy, making, namaji. It actually literally means breasts, having breasts. Wow. So <laughs> mountains look like boobies. <laughs> so the snowy boobies. But it's um, the, you know, that, and all over the world, actually, people think mountains look like breasts. The French who first went to the Americas um, named the Grand Tetons because they thought. The mountain peaks there looked like nipples so that's wow. the tits <laughs> the great tits you know, so that there's that amazing. sort of you know so yeah even in that you know there's this sense that our bodies and the country that around us um are you know share this kind of similarity we're all the one kind of thing it's not country is um rocks and things that are not animate we see everything as animate so and I'm interested in how people, as I was just saying about elsewhere in the world, but you know, in, in Ireland they have the range called the PAPs, you know, again named for breasts, but it's this sort of all over the world, people of mountains have similar things to say about mountains because you usually have similar climates, um, and the the country is shaped in a similar way, that kind of thing. So mm. yeah.
4: And I wonder, would would women play a certain role in this in these countries or specifically in the alpine region where you're from with your ice mob what is the role of women in that in that community
13: look you know we in aboriginal australia we talk about men's business and women women's business and um never two shall meet in a way but uh they're complementary so the things that women are responsible for and that men are responsible for are um uh, you know quite Divided up if you like. And one of the things that, of course, women are responsible for is childbirth and making children and you know, raising them within your body and then outside it. And so there are all these important sites. My mother always says to me, there's a site up um as you go up the top of the the chairlift at um and at Threadbow when they go up to the top of the area where the ski runs sort of begin. Um, and over to the right-hand side, there's this big group of rocks there and there's a site there. And they also are known um, broadly as the sentinels. They sort of look out across the valley and actually all the way across to Ngunnawal country, Canberra. So um, it's really, you know, the case that the, and this is a place where, you, you know, my mother always says to us to be careful going there and to respect it, you know, because it is a... An important site. So this may be a place that has been um, an increase ceremony site for women. For example, we do, we do, we don't only do what we call increase ceremonies to keep snow coming every year or the, the bugong moths coming into our country, but we also do um, ceremony for our own our own reproduction and and our own health and our own engagement personally with country. So. You know, there are sites all over the mountains, and it's so poorly understood in Australia. We, it, the snowy mountains is, it's had almost no archeology down on it and no anthropology really, and, um, and very little history, recent history. So that's what I'm really enjoying doing now, all of that.
4: And what has been a really wonderful find for you in your linguistic journey so far?
13: Well, I I have to say, and I've I've said this publicly quite a lot recently, that I really really love trawling through the archives with my um, colleague Linda Barwick, and um, also Amanda Harris from the University of Sydney, and I'm now working with other people from this is from our School of Music, um, who are Neil Perez de Costa and Tony Martin and Graham Skinner. You know, trying to find Um, information about songs from my country, so back to this idea of increased ceremonies There, there are, when you're trying to make something happen by telling the country this is what it should keep doing, you sing to it, so and we, we use song in Aboriginal Australia to do lots of things. You know, we will sing someone we love to us. You know, we will sing to the environment to encourage it to do the things that uh, we would want it to be doing for our well-being. We, we sing people to health. You know, this idea of song is really important. And there's so much locked in the archive about uh, my own people. I'm just really enjoying now trawling through looking at things about the snow country I've worked on um, with communities on other areas of Australia for so long but doing things about my own area has been it's always been part of my life but not not something that I wanted to turn my very specific research focus to so I found um, with my colleagues this wonderful song of the Manaro people which I'd first seen when I was doing my doctoral thesis back in the 1980s and it's when I sat down with Linda, who cleaned the music um, of all the sort of Europeanness of it. This is a song documented by John Lotsky, who came through my country in 1834 A Song of the Manoru Women. When she cleaned this music, it sounds very much like a Southeastern Australian piece of music, um, Aboriginal music. And when I started to look at the text and Analyze it from a linguistic point of view, starting with this idea that "ku" is snow. It came to me as a um, a song of snow, an increase, asking the moon, particularly Gaba, bring the snow, bring the snow, bring it back. We need the snow. It goes Gunji, Gaugu Yuri, Gunji, Gunji, Galgal gu Yuri, Gunji, gu Yuri, and it goes on and says. You know please bring this snow we need it and um, within two days of singing it down on country with uh, my daughter and a cousin who's also Naruku, um, and this team from sydney university within two days there was this huge dump of snow and i thought <laughs> wow i've i've done some research in my time but I had kind of impact um, and you know community members um, in the Naragu community I've um, begun to teach other people how to sing it so if we keep getting great ski seasons and uh, and the rivers flow with the melt every year again um, you can say that the Naragu snow song works So
4: how incredible yeah. is that and how did it feel to sing that song that you had recovered from from the archives with your daughter and your and your family member
13: it was a most remarkable experience it was um look I'm going to say spiritual again it sounds a bit cliched but um I think that word spiritual it's of the spirit you know I felt my spirit lifting and I could feel country responding and i just i I was there we did it during the daylight not at night and the people who own the property that this bend of the river is on now were so um, kind in letting us use their land to sing the song and they also came and watched so it was almost like um how it would have been in 1834 when Lotsky was there he was wasn't aboriginal these people aren't aboriginal but we had this group of people from dalgetty including who were connected up with the people who own the property as our audience. Like Otsky was the audience to the Aboriginal community in, in, at his time. And um, my my cousin was playing the clapsticks because he's a man. And we the women were singing. And it just um my daughter walked away saying that, uplifted, I could and saying that. It was so important. On the way down to country, she, I was thinking oh, you know, um, is this, what is this to do this, you know, and she said mum, it's important, keep going, we must we have to do this, we have to be able to sing to country, you know, we need to climate change is here and the world needs to wake up and if part of waking up to um, working with the environment instead of against it is to uh Use this practice, which puts you in the landscape and brings the landscape into you, in a way that almost nothing else does. You know, to singing to country and with country is the most. I feel really emotional thinking of it now. I, I still every time I go down to country now, the song comes into my head. It's like an earworm that just sticks with me. Um, wow. And I had a can I had a really remarkable experience going into Wiradjuri country recently because I've got the song as the original digital music that Linda was creating when she was first thinking about how this score might have sounded, Um, it's on my phone and I was playing music. And just as I got to the sign saying, welcome to Wiradjuri country, my phone chose this piece of music. So it was this... So it's the snow song. So it was almost like my country, me and my country greeting the Wiradjuri and acknowledging them and thanking them for having me come into their country. It was just, I mean, these moments, they're, yeah, you couldn't orchestrate them. They're mm. remarkable.
4: Wow. And and how important is Aboriginal language and uncovering the lost languages and the lost songs in understanding the country, the culture, the environment, and the history of the people?
13: Well, my Lovely friend Linda and research colleague says that, and you know she's not alone amongst musicologists saying that it's very likely that music was actually the the, the first form of communication between what humans you know what we now call humans us. Um, and if you listen to other primates, you know they do all these wonderful singing to each other from the canopies of trees or walking through the jungles, you know, and I think, um you know song song is something about us that um is just it's something that comes out of all humans even we say people who you know we have these awful ways of talking about people who are tone deaf but everybody can sing everybody can use their voice in this way and marrying up language spoken language with song which is you know as people started to know, humans started to codify what they were saying more and more. This is, I guess, how speech has developed. It's more than likely how it did. So this idea of singing, singing language to country is really um, an ancient, ancient way of being human in the landscape and engaging with the environment. And the the, the words that come through in um, song, quite often they're specific to the song style. So the way in which we sing is different to the way in which we speak. And we, we know this from all sorts of songs that popular songs now and classical songs. but um, but what what is really um, critical is to understand that the way in which humans use speech, so me using naragu language in a song is a way of actually, using the language again it's one of the easiest ways for me to use the language i can sing a whole song in my language now and that's me speaking my language again and for a very long time Naragu has not been a publicly spoken language there are people as i understand it I, I haven't i don't know people who can speak i know of people who can speak the language but they don't they share it more within their own immediate family it's a um, but it's not it's not a language of everyday communication to so, so to sing a song in my language to share it publicly and communicate to everyone in this way is I think uh, a way of really helping people understand what it is to renew language practice and then I can introduce myself Naya jackie Naya Nyamichi midong I am of the Namichi clan of the Naragu people of the snowy mountains I am Jackie you know so to do this is, really to to feel the language come back into use. And that's what I saw in my daughter as well, singing that song. She was using our language. It was wonderful. Wow.
4: And I think there must be quite a lot of um, responsibility in uncovering languages and recovering them. And so how do you know if you've got it right or what is the process?
13: Well, one of the things is to share it um so when i shared the song with people from Tumbarumba, um the tumba community i had some really interesting comment one person said that he remembered the song being sung mm-hmm. and he said i was singing it too slowly <laughs> oh, and wow. uh when we yeah when we sang it a bit more quickly he said um yeah that that's how that's how i remember it that's how it should be so um, and he was really comfortable. He's an elder of our community and he was really comfortable with the song as it was. And uh, it, it, he also remembered it being performed for particular significant events in country. So uh, we will never really know. Uh, no one recorded that song in 1834. Lotsky didn't have the equipment to do that. But he re- recorded the song in his own mind and then he went back and with his learned friends who were musicians, he documented it. And you've got to remember, it, in the 1800s, people were very used to being able to, um, educated people were used to doing this kind of thing. They were musicians and scholars and artists and writers in a way that unfortunately we tend to separate these things in our schooling system a bit now. So so he um had that kind of recording so it's likely that what he documented and the language that he heard he wrote he he wrote it down in a way that i was able to match it up with other word lists from my country and figure out what um the text was likely to mean we'll never be certain but it's a pretty good guess and when people who are um with some creativity i have to say and with people who are of my country respond to it in that kind of way, very personal way, and that it resonates for them as something that they're familiar with, then I think, well, I've I've done something right.
4: Mm. And what is your hope for the future of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages in Australia and what role must non-Indigenous people play in
13: this? Your own interest in our languages is what... Um, fuels, I think, the whole movement across Australia, your own and all these other people, particularly amongst the um, young young people like yourself who are uh, wanting to understand this country, uh, wanting to understand it through Aboriginal knowledge and Torres Strait Islander knowledge and uh, using our languages as a base for understanding our country is something that I think so many people are now becoming really supportive of. Every school in Australia can teach an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander language, the Australian Curriculum for Languages has mandated that, and uh, there are many, many people out there in communities who are now involved in language programs, they're they're helping to keep their language going in their school, not only in schools, but in the community itself. They're doing things like creating artistic works, plays, uh, musical pieces, using language. Yutu Yindi, you know, was one of the first groups in Australia to record in language. That's um, Coloured Stone, all these amazing bands. So these are things that wider Australia can engage with, support our musicians. We've got... Baker boy now, rapping in language. Um, You know, I I could go on and make a huge list of there are artists who use language in their work. My own colleague, Janelle Evans, who's Daruk, uses language in her artistic work. I have another... Um, student at Sydney University who's also direct Jacinta Tobin who's a musician who sings in the language of Sydney and more and more people are uptaking all of this so get behind this you know support Aboriginal artists and musicians and playwrights and writers uh, many writers Um, Tara June Winch writing in Wiradjuri and Anita Heiss has just published a marvellous book Um, buy these books read these books get to know the language yeah
4: I think that's wonderful, and thank you so much, Jacqueline, for speaking with me. And there is a huge interest in in the language. Um, I definitely have a massive interest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages here, and I know our audience does too. So, thank you so much.
13: Well, I'm happy to support anybody who wants to follow up. You know, as you said, I'm based at the University of Sydney, and uh, I have wonderful um, colleagues from. Australia who are doing their PhDs with me and also from across the world um, and uh, we're always here as Indigenous people passionate about our languages and not my non-Indigenous colleagues as well to support anybody who wants to know more in the language of Sydney we would say didgerigura which is thank you and in my own language I would say yara so you can say yara which means I'm off which is our goodbye
4: <laughs> wonderful well yara
13: Yara Alice Djirigura.
4: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Wednesday Breakfast Show. Thank you to all of our guests and speakers today, and listeners. Don't go anywhere because the 3CR Invasion Day broadcast kicks off at 9 a.m. First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you news from around Australia and talking sovereignty, treaty, truth and justice. We'll be playing music listening to historical audio from the archives, and it's going to be a day of learning and solidarity for us all. So don't go anywhere. They'll be with you very soon. But as for Wednesday Breakfast, that is the end of the show, and we'll see you next week.
2: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.
6: Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards. Plastic-free stationery and Earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.